Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. And by us, I mean not just myself, but I mean Bill Connolly, whose book, The Fragility of Things, with Duke University Press that just came out in 2013, occasioned the opportunity for us to talk today. I also mean the thunderstorm that was raging outside here in Berlin while we were talking. I mean my grumbling tummy. I mean the water glass that I was sipping from, the clicking pen and you will hear evidence of all of those actors that are part of different systems that we're engaging over the course of our conversation um, when you listen to the soundscape to come. Now, the book is very much a study of the possibilities of thinking with, thinking through, and thinking into self-organizing systems uh, broadly construed. So among the topics that come up, and you'll hear a lot of this in the conversation to come, Bill looks very carefully at uh, the sort of neoliberal philosophy and neoliberal theory and ways that we might productively re-encounter the assumptions of neoliberalism. He looks at the philosophies of thinkers we may not otherwise associate with complex systems and self-organization, like Kant, like Nietzsche, um, and he puts them into dialogue with other the work of other thinkers who help us through that dialogue re-envision what the philosophies of, of Whitehead, of Nietzsche, of Kant, of Hesiod, of Greek poetry and Greek drama might look like and how we might reinterpret them in ways that are, I think, extraordinarily creative and very productive. For the purpose of the STS channel, uh, among the obvious ways in which the book is deeply relevant to thinking about systems, markets, um, human and non-human interactions, issues of agency, there's a lot of other places throughout the text where I think the book really models what it can look like to productively juxtapose concepts, thinkers, um, books, uh, ideas, philosophies in ways that I think we could really benefit from and learn from in the field. And there's a lot of engagement with the kinds of issues and topics that I think a lot of us in STS are interested in and engaged in right now. So there's a lot here. I strongly urge you, um, if you're interested in the book after hearing the interview or after hearing what I've just said, to go out and get a copy and read it yourself because there's so much richness that we just barely skated over the surface of. There's so much we didn't have a chance to talk about. And it was one of the most inspiring and really um, the wonderfully, wonderfully inspiring books that I've had the pleasure to read um, in the recent past. So I hope you have a chance to do that. I hope you enjoy the interview and thanks very much for listening. I'm here today to talk with William Connolly about his new book, The Fragility of Things, Self-Organizing Processes, Neoliberal Fantasies, and Democratic Activism. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Bill, and thanks very much, not only for making the time to talk with me today, but for being patient with the thunderstorm that is raging in the background here in Berlin. I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking with you about a book that I really love, so welcome. 
well, thank you, and the thunderstorm may be appropriate. <laughs> That's right. So the book that we're talking about today, The Fragility of Things, offers a way to think about the world as a kind of gathering of self-organizing systems or ecologies, and we'll talk about what that means um, a little bit later. And from there, explores the ramifications and possibilities for how we think about and practice work with markets, politics, and daily life. And there's a whole lot more going on, and we will um, get to that over the course of our conversation. So can you start us off by situating this project within your larger research trajectory? How did you get here, and how does this relate to your previous work? Well, um, it, it is definitely connected to my previous work. Uh, it is perhaps also uh, uh, another jumping-off point. Uh, but years ago when um, when I was teaching and then writing about the book of Job, I became really fascinated with the theophany in which the nameless one keeps speaking about these this multitude of forces that interact and how they're not designed for us and how any kind of uh, theology that would insist that they be so uh, is uh, too uh, human-centered. And of course, in the book of Job, that is then taken back in the epilogue, but that, that, that affected me. And then when, then when I started thinking about the issues of time and temporality and thinking about uh, the larger ecological issues, uh, I think that those two things started uh, meshing together. And it started, it, it helped me to, to read one of the thinkers I had paid attention to, Nietzsche, differently than I had read him in the past to see things in the text that were there, but I hadn't really focused on. And then it drew me towards thinkers like Whitehead and others. Uh, so I, I think that uh, I will take that to be at least uh, part of how I became uh, motivated to do this, uh, to engage in this study uh, and, and, and then join that to the, to the idea that at some point I can't identify exactly when I too was shocked by the idea that uh, human cultural practices could change climate. So maybe that is a decent start as to uh, how I got into this project. Great. Thank you so much. And I'll flag um, right away for listeners that even though the book isn't explicitly about this and it's not necessarily your goal, I was really excited um, to read it because I think there's a lot here, and this will, I'm sure, come out in the course of the conversation, that both speaks to and can really productively reorient how we do science studies, how we do STS, and also how we do history, my fields, um, or the fields that I work in. So we'll get to some of that in the conversation to come, but I wanted to just kind of put that right out there because I think there's a lot of contributions that this study can make even two fields that it's not explicitly directly necessarily speaking to. So you've talked a little bit about how you came to the project and how this is a sort of part of your larger trajectory. But now can you talk a little bit about the process of making this particular book take the particular shape that it has? How did you decide to kind of structure it and build it in this particular way with these particular bounds? Yeah. Well, the the, the, the book is, is organized uh, around a prelude and then, uh, and then interspersed between the chapters three interludes and then a postlude. And 
and uh, and I, I wanted the the chapters to to pre- provide certain kinds of arguments and historical evidence, and then I wanted the prelude and the postlude and the interludes to kind of work on us, work on myself and others at a more visceral level, uh, so that uh, we could move back and forth uh, between. Uh, modes of argument which definitely have uh, rhetorical dimensions to them and so forth uh, and, and and kind of uh, visceral uh, engagements with the human predicament and so that's for example why I thought it it might be pertinent to start off with uh, a review of the earthquake uh, in 1755 and the various responses to it including Voltaire's, which I focus on for a while, is to kind of give us all a dose of shock therapy by seeing what kind of shocks, what what that shock was doing uh, to a variety of constituencies and how they responded to it. So I think of the interludes as working on us uh, uh, or concentrating more on uh, one of the registers of being than uh, and the chapters do, even though uh, the chapters are paying attention to that, as they as as all writing does, and and the interludes have arguments. I'm trying to think about a kind of a, a moving back and forth. That was the style. That was the idea, and it of course came to me slowly when I was when I was engaging in the work. Uh, but once. Once I decided upon it, uh, I felt kind. I felt more or less at home with that structure, and and interludes interrupt, and so they. You have a, a narrative structure, you have a mode of argument, and then you have an interruption. And I, I wanted, since I think about the world in this way, the world of of processes interrupted by events, I. I maybe it was a grandiose idea, and uh, maybe I shouldn't even say this, but probably I wanted the 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 book to uh, almost simulate the structure of the world that uh, I think we're in. I think that comes across really clearly in the structure, and it's um, actually quite inspiring. I think it works really, really well to sort of give us not just a visual, a visceral sense of what you're talking about from the content of the interludes, but also that viscerality of the moving back and forth that comes from that punctuation, that moving from um, the chapter. So thank you for that. And so since you've already talked about um, the Lisbon earthquake in 1755, let's actually use that as a way to segue and move right into the book itself. So the, the prelude, as you mentioned, takes us into 1755 and the earthquake disaster in Lisbon. Now, it proceeds to consider the engagement of Voltaire's Candide, as you mentioned, um, and the Pangloss character therein in particular, with this disaster. Now, it compares Pangloss's philosophy with that of neoliberalism, so this seems um, to me to be a good place to start. For listeners who may not be familiar with um, neoliberalist philosophy, neoliberalism, or at least with your conception of it, can you um, take a moment to explain what are the salient features of neoliberalism for the purposes of our understanding how it shapes what you're arguing in the book? 
Yeah. Well, uh, neoliberalism is, of course, uh, a contested term. And at least in the United States, it wasn't a very common term of art until recently. Uh, but it, but it, it has been in Europe and, and other places for a longer period of time. So I, I focus a, a, a bit more on the, the American variant of neoliberalism. And here I mean a, a kind of uh, initial appreciation of how economic markets can have self-organizing processes in them that exceed the capacities of anybody to control them. And since I'm talking about self-organizing processes in a lot of domains, that I wanted to pursue that line in neoliberalism uh, and then and then expand it way beyond the parameters within which they usually advance it. But then secondly, the assumption that self-organizing processes uh, uh, exude a kind of impersonal rationality in the market. And uh, I, I found myself I think that that equation between uh, self-organization and impersonal rationality is a very, uh, very unsound one and a very dangerous one. So those are two features of neoliberalism. Another, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, well, another another feature is that it presents itself as wanting a small state, but it doesn't pursue a small state. It wants a selectively large state that disciplines people, institutions, corporations, churches, workers, consumers to fit the dictates of a neoliberal market. So, uh, so it's a very, it, it, it supports a disciplinary state and it always ends up having states with a lot of uh, uh, prisons and punitive mechanisms. So it's not that it has a small state, that's the advertisement, but it has a selectively large state. And then maybe I'll just say one more thing on my reading of neoliberalism it has a, it, it, it exudes a hubris with respect to the impact of human processes uh, on uh, non-human uh, 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 processes and activities of a variety of sorts. So it, it practices benign neglect with respect to uh, those kinds of processes, climate, ocean currents, soil quality, the effects of fracking, and so forth and so on. Well, this actually really nicely brings us into the first chapter where the text really explores the ramifications of rethinking and thinking differently about neoliberalism from a number of different perspectives. So after problematizing um, neoliberalism and sort of setting this up as the problematic, you bring us into some more kind of elaborations of your take on this. So markets, as you put it um, in this part of the book, are not unique systems. They share the cosmos with many force fields. And, and I'm being um, I'm using the language that comes out in the chapter here because it seems yeah. to be really important. It shares the cosmos with many force fields that share some of the characteristics of impersonal self-organization that many reserve for markets. Now you say here, markets not only possess a lot of self-organizing power, but the human and non-human systems with which they interact do as well. Such a combination, as you put it, changes everything. So this seems to me to be a good place to jump into this chapter. Can you talk about how, um, for you, thinking about markets 
in as they are entangled with human and non-human self-organizing systems changes everything. Um, can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Well, if you think about when uh, when Adam Smith was writing, and even when uh, the early period when uh, Hayek, one of the great neoliberal economists, uh, uh, was writing, they they had no sense, no appreciation that. Uh, we were uh, that our practices were actually introducing triggers that changed the climate and then that entered into a series of self amplifications uh, within the climate processes uh, uh, to, to, uh, to, to increase and to carry the modifications further. So they were, they were shaped by a certain kind of blindness. Now, this blindness wasn't unique to them, but uh, it did. Neoliberalism conveys a certain kind of hubris with respect to non-human processes, with the the human capacity to control, regulate them, exploit them, extract from them for its purposes. So, if you so so uh, a, a lot of things were available for someone like Hayek and others to think about, even though that one wasn't. But they would kind of brush it off. Eventually, the market will take care of this. Uh, There's pollution. There's soil degradation processes. Uh, Eventually, uh, if there's a problem, the market will take care of it, and it doesn't work that way, and it hasn't worked that way. And actually, I think it will never work that way. So you mentioned here, um, and this is something that also comes up earlier in the book, and it's come up in um, your other work as well, that putting these systems into dialogue with each other heightens our sense of the fragility of things. So can you speak, um, for listeners, again, who aren't familiar with this notion of the fragility of things or the precariousness of things, in what ways does that importantly shape what you're doing in this part of the book? Yeah, well, the, the fragility of things is a fragility, uh, first and foremost, from the vantage point of the human estate that is actually entangled with multiple forces of multiple sorts all the time, both uh, all the way from uh, bacteria uh, and viruses uh, to uh, climate and ocean currents and soil processes and self-water filtration systems and it's uh, and the, the, the ways in which... Uh, uh, of bees who are indispensable to agricultural processes uh, 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 maintain themselves and and so forth. So that um, so what what the in, in general what many modern philosophies and, and public attitudes have ignored is the fragility of things for the human estate in its relations with. Uh, a variety of non-human processes. And that's where I see a certain kind of hubris at play. Now, you don't see that in the Greek tragedy in Sophocles. Uh, there, uh, when, when he's writing his tragedies, uh, and some of his texts don't end in a tragic result, but, but he's always a tragic thinker, that is, a tragic possibility that, that could emerge. He's always also alert to plagues, uh, to uh, seers, to non-human 
processes, which he which are interpolated as gods. Uh, so uh, it isn't as if this is an inevitable conception or or tendency of human beings. So I wanted to title my book "The Fragility of Things," and then I wanted to link it up with this idea, which is almost paradoxical that to come today to terms today with the fragility of things requires a certain kind of uh, political militancy given neoliberalism. So that's, that's what I mean by the fragility of things uh, that uh, the, the climate processes in some way or another will continue uh, well after the uh, human estate is uh, meets its demise, but, but so when when I think about fragility, I'm thinking about it first and foremost for us, but in our entanglements of multiple sorts with all kinds of other processes. So so fragility and entanglement are uh, are aligned terms. I hope that maybe gets us started. Oh, absolutely. And it actually, the, um, your raising of the term and the concept of entanglement is a really lovely segue into the first interlude, which really takes entanglement, and specifically entanglement of the human and the non-human is a key part of what's going on. Now, this first interlude looks carefully at the film Melancholia to explore this phenomenon. So um, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that. Can you um, explain... Or, or, you know, just talk a little bit about how you see the film Melancholia really embodying this issue of the entanglement of the human and the non-human systems. Well, I wanted to, uh, when, I, when I saw the film uh, Melancholia, Lars von Trier film, uh, it, it uh, affected me uh, quite uh, profoundly. And I wanted to see if I could capture that effect. And I also saw it, the first time I watched it again later when I decided to write about it, but the first time I saw it uh, in the Charles Theater in Baltimore with a large audience, and and we were experiencing these effects together, and they uh, and and they were they were really uh, uh, impactful for uh, all of us in very similar ways. So the the plot line of Melancholia is is simple enough. Uh, there's a planet much larger than the Earth, which, it, uh, which they recently found out is probably going to uh, uh, collide with the Earth and destroy it. Uh, and, and you go through all of the modes of denial that people would, would naturally and normally uh, engage in. And, and uh, as, as you kind of come to terms, and as the audience gradually comes to terms with kind of under, underneath and, and folded into our everyday uh, desires to uh, do well by our children, uh, to uh, uh, succeed in vocation, uh, to uh, be appreciated by other people, uh, to have a rich social on, on and on endlessly, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a visceral attachment uh, to the earth as such uh, that uh, today needs to be dramatized. It, it today needs to be uh, brought out, not in a way that would eliminate those other kinds of attachments, but infuse itself into them more uh, 
more profoundly than uh, than we have been doing uh, in the past. And this this kind of uh, spiritual attachment to the world can come can be can be connected to a, 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 a set of different creeds, including atheistic and non-theistic and Muslim and so forth. That can be attached to different creeds, uh, but it's absolutely essential today for it to play a, a larger background role uh, in our political choices in in the role experiments we engage in and if we're professors what we teach how we teach it uh uh if we're uh if if we're churchgoers what kinds of things we bring to our churches and so forth so um that's what i thought uh, melancholia could do so i call it the interlude called melancholia and us and that is what it what it can do to us and uh, because I saw uh, later an, entre- an interview with Lars von Trier, was, he was very smart about the film, but almost everything else he said, I, I found myself disaffected from. So it's, I, I wanted to be melancholia and us, to think about our attachments or to feel our attachments. And one of the things um, that I think, just as from the perspective of one reader, right, or one experiencer of that interlude, that comes out really beautifully in that interlude is the importance of the everyday, daily routine and daily struggles, and really the importance of taking that seriously and really engaging with that in the context of the larger arguments the book is making. Yeah, well, thanks, because... Because because sometimes if you're holding if you're advancing the kinds of uh, perspective uh, 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 pursued here the uh, it, it, you can kind of leave the everyday behind but I want these things to be folded into the everyday and the everyday to be folded into them and so that is a that's an important kind of uh, thing to do when Hayek was writing his uh, great book uh, he wanted to treat. Uh, a whole bunch of practices as what he calls abstract, an abstract worker, an abstract owner, an abstract consumer. And that's, that's what a part of what I'm trying to move away from. And in fact, we're also moving toward it insofar as the next chapter looks very carefully at Hayek. Um, it looks at sort of Hayek really as a paradigmatic figure in the larger field of neoliberal theory and neoliberal philosophy. So um, for listeners who might not, again, be familiar with Hayek, and since um, you just brought him up, can you tell yeah. a little bit about um, not just that choice, but about the, the what are the most salient features of his work that make it important to the kind of work that you're doing here and the most salient features that you are kind of upending or complicating in this part of the book? Yeah. Well, Hayek started writing in the 30s, and and his major theme, and, and he's become, when he was writing, he was a marginal figure, uh, but he has become a, a critical figure in, in uh, contemporary new, neoliberalism, and I want to understand how that, that worked. And what he was, his, his basic argument was that any kind of uh, society in which markets are not don't uh, reign supreme is a is a society as he puts it on the road to serfdom and so he kind of neglected how uh, 
how the Great Depression emerged out of kind of markets gone wild, uh, uncontrolled, unfettered markets, and, and reversed the equation. It's on the road to serfdom, and his major adversaries were collectivism and also Keynes. So he has a, but he has a well-worked-out theory of how he thinks markets in the abstract work if the state supports them uh, rather than regulating them. And so I wanted to, since I had a first chapter that you noted on neoliberalism per se, and, I, and I, I knew that some people would contest my image of neoliberalism, it's inevitable they will and do, uh, that I wanted to come up with one paradigmatic figure of, of neoliberalism, and I selected Hayek. Now, the second reason I selected Hayek is that, that he uh, wanted to be, and actually I think was, a philosopher of self-organization and how self-organization works. And, and, but only uh, applied, I mean, he mentioned species evolution, he mentions language, but it's only applied to markets. So I wanted to both unfold what he says and, and, and distill an insight here or there from it, and then uh, offer a critique of Hayek uh, in, in terms of uh, what, where his uh, philosophy takes us and and, uh, uh, and and kind of along the way, pay attention to how it is that uh, after World War II, all uh, everybody thought that uh, the various uh, kind of market theories and then neoliberalism would never make a comeback, but they made a but they did start making a comeback in the late seventies, and they still haven't stopped. Uh, so that's how I kind of dealt with Hayek, and, I, and the the idea is to keep moving from, to, to kind of to critique the theory from the inside out uh, and, and keep uh, adding uh, dimensions that he needs, would need to take into account and would, uh, I think, what I say, explode it uh, uh, if he takes them into account. That's why today there is a certain kind of link between neoliberalism and not uh, climate denialism, but climate skepticism and deferral, climate skepticism and deferral, because they know that if they come to terms with this radically and significantly, they have to change a lot. Now, one of the things in the course of um, kind of opening up and exploding and critiquing, but also really getting inside in a very productive way, I think, Hayek's work, one of the things um, that you're doing is to sort of highlight elements of that that we can, uh, I think, productively rethink, given your interest in um, attuning us to the importance of thinking about markets in terms of multiply interacting, entangled, self-organizing systems. Um, but you do a couple of things that seem to me to be important um, to highlight, for, especially for listeners, because they recur throughout. So one, one of the things for, or throughout the rest of the book, so I'll just mention one of the things I really liked here from the perspective of um, a historian um, who is, you know, very concerned with the um, time as part of the craft of what it is to talk about the past and situate things in the past. I was really pleased um, at the point here that you're making that it's important to situate the state 
um, or to understand the state as, as you put it here, an institution situated in time. Um, so the kind of the importance of taking seriously and playfully the, the situatedness in time and different um, sort of modes of time of these different elements, I think, is really important. The other thing that I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about is the importance of creativity here. So one of your critiques of Hayek is that, as, at least as I um, read it, he's downplaying the importance of the modes of creativity that emerge from social movements. And because creativity plays such an important role um, in the second half of the book as well, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, the importance of creativity as you're understanding it here and, and the importance of this as a critique of neoliberalism. Okay, well, uh, yeah, you've hit uh, a, a kind of a, a key element and uh, uh, we'll see if I can uh, uh, make some progress on it. Uh, one of the things that is impressive about Hayek is that he links freedom to creativity. And a lot of conceptions of freedom uh, are that you can, uh, the negative conception of freedom is you can do what you want. And they don't worry about how your wants were formed. Or uh, the positive conception of freedom, uh, you, uh, you are free if you are a part of a larger community which speaks to vital human needs. Uh, but Hayek would say, well, you guys have ignored the element of creativity. But in fact, and, and he pursues that element. Uh, and, and creativity, of course, is a phenomenon that has a lot of uncertainty attached to it. You don't know what will come out of it. You don't know where it will go exactly. It's a, creativity is a gift and a risk. So what Hayek does is then, in fact, or in practice, to equate creativity with entrepreneurs uh, and, and to stop thinking about how it could function because it would blow up his theory, it would blow up the whole uh, thing, how creativity can function in social movements, how it can function in labor unions, how it can uh, function in uh, 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 the internal dynamics of family life, uh, how uh, it can, and then, as you know, I use this as an example, how it can function in a basketball game, how it can function in all kinds of domains. So once you have brought self-organization and then the element of possible creativity to, uh, to, to multiple domains, then the kind of exclusive, the exclusivity of the fiction of the market doesn't work anymore. So I want to take that element of creativity from Hayek and then uh, blow it up uh, in, into uh, multiple ways. Now, if you, if you make creativity part of your conception of freedom, uh, that is also is uh, at odds with some strong notions of agency uh, in uh, the human sciences and philosophy that are not Hayeki and are not neoliberal. And so I have to kind of uh, uh, wage this uh, struggle on, uh, on multiple fronts as we go through uh, here. That uh, when, when we're involved in an endeavor out of which something creative emerges, uh, it, it isn't uh, already there in our intention before it starts, before it unfolds. So, uh, so strong notions of agency have to be modified in the very interests of coming to terms with the relationship of freedom 
to creativity. And so that's the last section of that chapter. And, I, and my goal is to both express a certain kind of initial appreciation and then to carry the issue in places that Hayek and Hayekians would never would never accept. Uh, and then, of course, we have to be we have to strive to be creative today, given the situation that we're in. So we don't want to uh, we don't want to uh, bury the issue and loveliness and sweetness of creativity uh, uh, out of concern for the uh, kind of awesome character of, of our larger situation. Fragility and creativity. I want those. I want those to function together, even though they're in tension in this text. Thank you so much. And um, in bringing out the importance of agency, you flagged, I think, one of the uh, points that I wanted to just mark for listeners who are coming at this book, um, primarily from an interest in science studies or STS, in addition to um, pointing us to the importance of and letting us explore the different ways of being uh, and thinking about self-organizing systems and also reorienting us to sort of, I think, very different and productive ways of thinking about the interactivity between human and non-human systems. I think this sort of mode of re-envisioning and kind of opening up, um, I think there's a lot of opening up in this book in a really productive way, but opening up the idea of agency, that's, that's obviously a touchstone for a lot of um, science studies right now is the conception of agency and the kind of work that it does. And so I think this is one of many points um, where this part of the analysis really speaks to and could productively inform larger questions about historical agency and agency in the, in the uh, science studies. So as we move from here, um, let's bring it back to the visceral um, and really the viscerality of walking on a swaying bridge. So Interlude 2 continues to consider the creative role of self-organization in markets, and it looks at different kinds of self-organization that really embody, and very literally, different degrees of complexity. It focuses on four modes. The first of those modes, and um, for me, one of the most uh, viscerally impactful is a mode that's exemplified by a bridge called the Millennium Bridge. And you talk about this and use this as an example in this interlude of some of the larger phenomena you're using this interlude to explore. So could you do that for us now as well? Can you talk a little bit about this Millennium Bridge and the significance of this for the argument that you're making at this point in the book? Well, um, uh, yeah, I will try to do so. And, And so that interlude is... Uh, focused on modes of self-organization, and and some of them uh, I'm stretching myself beyond my uh, uh, previous competencies and to the edge of them, and probably uh, pa- probably past them. But that's what I want the adventure to be. So I want to have different modes of self-organization. The first example. Uh, is the Millennium Bridge, which is a walking bridge in London that stretches across uh, the Thames River. And it actually was uh, presented uh, briefly in a paper on a, uh, by Philip Goodchild, uh, a theologian in, uh, in England, uh, who was writing on a, who, who was making a presentation with another group of people on another book of mine, Capitalism, Christianity, American Style. And he started to I had a kind of an incipient notion of self-organization in that book, and and he started talking about it more extensively, and he gave that 
Uh, he gave that example briefly. And so I'm just uh, morphing off his example and trying to develop it further. Uh, and uh, the, the thing about the bridge when you walked across it was that uh, the bridge sways, and that makes it attractive. It's on the way to the Tate Museum, so the Tate Modern Museum, so everybody wants to go there. Everybody wants to walk on the bridge. And uh, my partner and I did too. And, and it will sway gently in the breeze uh, because of the way it's set up. Uh, and at the same time, your the rhythms of your walking unconsciously adjust to the swaying. The swaying uh, 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 then is amplified. Then that uh, uh, flows back into the movements of, of other people who are walking. And so the, what you get is a it is a, uh, a, a self-amplification process. Uh, and so the bridge, uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a great experience, except that uh, the bridge was going to collapse. And so the engineers who uh, had built it, uh, and so this is a simple uh, self-amplifying system because, because it was, its parameters are built by people from the outside. But, uh, and so they decided that this, bridge was in danger uh and and so it had to be rebuilt uh and i've walked on it since then and i don't like it nearly as much but i guess i feel a little safer uh and uh uh so that that is that is what i was calling a simple a simple self-organizing self-amplifying system uh and uh, and maybe we need examples of those simple systems and maybe of, of multiple sorts. And, uh, and one of the lessons I was trying to draw from that is that that shows you immediately that, uh, that self-organization and impersonal rationality do not necessarily go together. This was a self-organizing system and it was going to collapse. Mm-hmm. And you raise this along with the other four um, modes, including a thermodynamic system, a mode of species, evolution, and a, a discussion of class differences and state market relations as a way, among other things, um, of emphasizing the importance of teleodynamism. Can you talk about teleodynamism? What is, uh, what is that and what kind of work is it doing here in terms of the centrality of your argument? Well, um uh, I have been fascinated for a few years now, maybe 10 years, 12 years, uh, with uh, work by people who sometimes call themselves uh, complexity theorists in uh, biology and geology and climatology and so forth. And, and I, I, I feel myself as, as an amateur who reads them, draws some sustenance from them, and then sees what, uh, uh, what, what additional or what more work I can do with it. And, uh, the word teleodynamism is coined by uh, a neuroscientist and anthropologist by the name of uh, Terence Deacon. I haven't met him yet. Uh, and uh, in a book called Incomplete Nature. And it's introduced uh, as a way of uh, pursuing his critique of... Um, so this is self-organizing mode in species evolution. So that's, that's the short version of it. But it's his critique of genocentric models of, uh, 
of, of evolution that are focused on kind of the replication of genes. And so he, he agrees with the notions of epigenesis and, uh, and how the processes are more complex involving embryos and so forth. But he, uh, and then he also disagrees, so he disagrees with that, and then he also disagrees with those notions uh, of a certain kind of teleology that has a, a preordained end. And everybody in science studies uh, and in philosophy, including me, uh, have been, you know, for decades or longer, we're warned off from being teleologists. But he introduces the idea of teleodynamism, which is a searching process that emerges uh, at, uh, at key moments when embryos are disrupted, and that uh, uh, so that uh, it's teleo, but it's not uh, pre- finalistic or preordained. Uh, and he thinks that that you have to project those into uh, the processes of species evolution and the processes of species change, and and in the processes of simple organisms. Uh, well below the human estate. So he would agree with Stuart Kaufman and others uh, in uh, thinking about uh, uh, how bacteria pursue ends and so forth. Uh, so so I, I wanted to think of tele, the teleodynamic mode uh, as, a, as another more complicated mode of self-organization. Uh, and of course, this is a, a mode uh, of self-organization in which... Uh, the uh, parameters are not preset by us, uh, but there are pre-adaptations that set some parameters, but we don't know uh, uh, what they will be, and out of them uh, you, you have uh, new processes, new species emerging, and so forth. So I wanted to attach myself to Deacon uh, as, a, as, a, uh, as a biologist who I think is uh, is kind of boldly experimenting uh, in a in a speculative way uh, with a uh, with going beyond simply critiques of genocentrism, but also uh, pursuing a a more positive agenda as to how it might operate. Uh, and then I then I take the term and I and and probably maybe too much uh, I apply it to other domains as well. Thank you. Now, as we move from here to the next chapter, you take us into a way of opening up a way of thinking about a world of becoming by taking us into Kant and the work of Kant from a somewhat unusual, at least for me, um, direction. So chapter three, shock therapy, dramatization, and practical wisdom exposes and also kind of shakes up or disturbs some of the presuppositions that many of us bring to Kantian thought. You describe this as delivering a series of micro shocks, so hence shock therapy, to some of the starting points from which Kantian arguments proceed and which are typically taken to be beyond dispute. Now, the chapter is going to deliver these shocks by placing Kantian thought into a relationship with notions of causality, the cosmos, and the ethical life in the work of Greek author Hesiod. And I really I really loved this. It's a great approach to methodology as well as just being a really fascinating way to read both of these authors. So to get into this a little bit, can you talk about Hesiod? And specifically, what are some of the most salient features of how you're 
we're thinking about Hesiod here in terms of allowing that work to resonate with Kant. So what's another way, in other words, what's important for us to understand about what you take to be the important parts of Hesiod in order for us to understand then um, how yeah. to those to point to Kant? Or how to, how to uh, kind of confront or how to confront the little Kant within us. Uh, and well, um, so I don't think of myself as a as so much a historicist or a contextualist in that uh, in, in the, that, that noble tradition, the noble narrative tradition. I find the the most uh, exciting things to do, the, the the things that kind of open up creative paths to pursue, are when you you bring a thinker from one setting and time uh, into kind of oblique conjunction with the thinker in another setting in time and and see how that uh, see how that bouncing back and forth see what effect it has uh, partly on allowing us to think better about both thinkers but even more importantly allowing us to pursue thoughts that we might not otherwise have had so thinking and the creative element of thinking through this kind of shock therapy. So that's how I tried to use Hesiod's theogony. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on Hesiod by any means, uh, but Hesiod's uh, world of multiple gods that are careening back and forth and, and having implications uh, for human beings and so forth uh, is, is not uh, that far removed from a notion of multiple force fields, uh, 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 each with its own uh, temporality uh, intersecting with each other and uh, 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 out of those intersections generating uh, sometimes new processes and that, that sort of thing. So Hesiod's world, or the, the version of Hesiod's world that I was drawn to uh, is uh, one in which there's a lot more tumult, uh, a lot more uh, uh, process, a lot uh, uh, more events that emerge as if from nowhere, uh, and, uh, and and it uh, that that puts us into a, a different relationship to the Kantian world. The Kantian world is one I think of as, uh, and this is contestable, of course, but I think of Kant as uh, having a set, facing a set of anxieties and trying to smooth them down through uh, postulates uh, that uh, that that make it so that we have to act as if the world is benign in this way, providential in that way, and so forth. And it's all done in the interest of uh, protecting an image of moral of morality that I find to be troublesome for uh, a, a time when things are changing at a faster rate. So that's how I was trying to deploy Hesiod. And, and out, of, uh, out of that come notions of causality that are, that are quite different from the ones that, uh, uh, one of the ones that Kant uh, embrace a, a notion of efficient causality where it's uh, uh, the external impingement of one object upon another. And so uh, uh, that, that was, I tried to make that kind of a loosening up operation so that, so that we could then think 
differently as to whether the apodictic starting points for some of Kant's arguments are as apodictic uh, as he uh, uh, took them to be, and as uh, they could easily be taken to be if you uh, if you were kind of operating in his context. So there's a there's a there's a kind of a politics of modest decontextualization at play here. That's what I would say I'm trying to do. I really loved that. I really loved this chapter as um, kind of a model of the possibilities for thinking differently, more creatively, and I think in many ways more productively about some of these texts and how they inform how we think about um, the kinds of conceptual uh, tools, instruments, modes of movement that can emerge out of them. And another chapter that, of course, does this, and for a moment I'm going to um, sort of uh, speed past the third interlude on fullness and vitality, but we'll we'll get back to that if there's time. Um, But it's a good moment, I think, to turn to another chapter that does this quite explicitly, and this is chapter four that looks at process philosophy and planetary politics. Now, just as Kant and Hesiod kind of had a conversation in chapter three, here we see Whitehead and Nietzsche being put into, I think, a really productive kind of juxtaposition to, to look, to allow us to see differently and understand differently elements of both of their thought. So this is a really wonderful conversation, and you start out in this chapter by allowing us to understand the very different kinds of materials of inspiration that shaped the positions of both Whitehead and of Nietzsche. So you talk about the importance of understanding Whitehead as somebody who is kind of philosophically growing up among the advent or amid the advent of quantum mechanics. So because this seems really important, um, can you maybe take us into this chapter by starting off uh, talking a little bit about that? The importance of uh, <coughs> excuse me, quantum mechanical thinking for our understanding important elements of Whitehead's philosophy as you are identifying them here. Yeah, I will try to do so. I mean, I wanted to uh, make it clear that I was being a bit, uh, that I was stretching uh, beyond myself in making, uh, pursuing in pursuing this direction. But I had to because that was, it was so important to Whitehead. Uh, before doing that, I will just mention mm-hmm. in a note that uh, that one of the things that Kant did in his brilliance in the critique of judgment was to open up again the whole door of thinking about modes of self-organization. And that could that could have been taken, and he did it in a brilliant way. And I just want to note that because because I don't want to be I don't want to think of myself as simply anti-Kantian or something. That was a that's a brilliant moment in Kant in my in my in my uh, judgment, and it needs to be pursued and amplified. Uh, well, Whitehead, yeah. Uh, so Whitehead, the great. Uh, writing at the end of the uh, the 19th century, and then. In, in t- uh, into the uh, long into the 20th century, uh, he, the great uh, mathematician and logician who had written with uh, Russell, but kind of took a different turn after that from Russell. And uh, he, as I understand him, he was a kind of an expert on, on uh, Newtonian uh, theory and his world fell apart when he decided that some version 
of quantum mechanics was true. And so uh, that's when he became very exploratory in his philosophical work. And that's where he introduced this philosophy that he called speculative realism, arguing that we have to speculate about aspects of the world that are beyond our current knowledge, uh, because if we don't, uh, unconscious judgments and uh, sensibilities will infuse themselves into our thinking anyway. So he he, he took the, the uh, ideas of uh, non-locality wasn't operating as much there, but the, 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 the issues of momentum and position uh, and extrapolated from them to an entire philosophy about uh, a, a world uh, composed of multiple force fields, or he called them actual entities, uh, which... Uh, 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 out of which uh, creative juxtapositions emerge. And so he, he opened up the idea of a, of a temporal uh, world of multiple temporalities that was open to an uncertain degree. So I found that enchanting, and I, I found it uh, interesting as a way of coming back to questions about the fragility of things. And, uh, and, and since then, you know, I keep, I keep uh, reading um, uh, different kinds of takes on quantum mechanics. Now, uh, Whitehead's take was not one that was accepted at the time. Uh, and uh, and it, it's not uh, accepted today, although you see glimmers here and there of explorations in this direction. And, and it, it does fascinate me to ask myself how it is that Whitehead was important for a while in the 20s and 30s, then an almost total eclipse except for uh, process theologians who, who kept the whole thing alive and they were brilliant and useful in doing so. And now uh, the, the, the Whiteheadian corpus is, is alive again. And there will be a conference at Claremont uh, this uh, next spring of June, June 4th through 7th, uh, with about 12 different uh, tracks. And each track will have about uh, 10 or 11 or 12 panels on Whitehead and ecology. And, uh, and I think that it has great possibilities. I'm going to be there, and uh, I'm going to see what those possibilities are. Uh, so, uh, so Whitehead was I, – I took Whitehead to be shocked – by quantum mechanics, and then to extrapolate philosophically from that shock as he was recovering from it. I think um, this is also one of the points at which the work um, that's being done in this book really productively intersects with STS more broadly, or maybe is part of um, an ongoing interest in STS, in which we, I think the more people I talk to, the more there's this resurgence of interest in Whitehead among um, STS scholars all over the place. I think that that if you if you look into uh, some uh, philosophical issues, some issues about uh, our intersections with climate, when you think about some new developments in neuroscience, you think about uh, uh, the the uh, science studies areas uh, and and in areas in political theory and philosophy. There's a convergence for somewhat divergent reasons, but a convergence of interest once again in Whitehead, and uh, so. I wish I could say I was there first, but, you know, maybe I was there second or third. I don't know. 
Yeah. But we're all here. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So to, uh, the, the chapter that is part of the book doesn't just look at Whitehead. It uses some salient points in Whitehead to help us re-encounter, re-envision, and open up Nietzsche. So you point to three or at least three um, major elements of Whitehead's thought, and certainly those uh, elements of his thought that are drawn from his engagement with quantum mechanics. So um, you call this an articulation of the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. So the idea of misplaced concreteness, Um, the idea that space isn't just a container for things, but actually consists in relations of spatialization. And then the idea that, as you put it here, real creativity is distributed differently across the universe and over time. So if we focus in on these three elements of Whitehead's thought and then kind of read Nietzsche's ideas, Nietzsche, of course, is coming from a really different set of um, influences. And you talk about um, the importance of an engagement with Hesiod and Heraclitus and Greek tragedy and shaping how Nietzsche is coming at the world. But if we read Nietzsche's ideas through this lens of engagement with Whitehead, it actually impacts how we understand him um, quite significantly. So can you speak to that a little bit? How does um, creating this engagement between Whitehead and Nietzsche maybe impact how we think about um, Nietzsche in relation to these larger arguments of the book? Yeah, well, um, in some quarters, uh, Nietzsche had been thought of as a a kind of a... uh, a radical subjectivist in the sense that he drops uh, Kantian notions of, ne- of necessity, and so there are multiple human subjectivities and they're in their uh, relationships uh, with each other. Uh, and, and then in other traditions, of course, Nietzsche is, was thought of as somehow a nihilist when in fact he was giving us a, 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 a mode of understanding of how nihilism emerged. When you put Whitehead and Nietzsche into conjunction, some texts, some things that Nietzsche says over and over again pop out, and you read them, uh, you read them with with greater salience. So, for example, uh, will to power uh, is a is is distributed throughout nature, uh, and. And all processes in uh, all natural processes have different degrees of uh, of, uh, of urgency and uh, 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 explosive potential, and they enter into unions with each other. That's his word: unions with each other. And and so uh, now you start to see uh, Nietzsche as a philosopher who was at odds with both uh, mechanistic conceptions of nature, which were common when he was writing, and organic conceptions of nature. Uh, and, and he fit into neither category. Well, that's where I think the interesting action is. So today, so that some notions of deep ecology were uh, oriented towards an organic conception of the world, if we just lighten our footprint, it will be... Uh, uh, it will take care of itself and and harmonize with us. I mean, that's uh, too crude. But uh, 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 when when Nietzsche would find the recent discoveries, I mean, the recent is is, is the 1980s that that there have been uh, uh, several times 
thought before human beings were involved in which uh, there were near extinction events. Uh, so geologists uh, talking about 250 million years ago when 90% of the uh, life on uh, on Earth uh, was uh, eliminated. And then another time, 65 million years ago. Another time, 100 million years ago. So Nietzsche would think of these. He would he would find this uh, uh, evidence and interesting and and would run with it. But he wouldn't find it totally shocking because he doesn't think the universe is for us. It has a liveliness. It has domains of of creativity but it's not designed for us either to master or to, uh, uh, or to become kind of organically intertwined with it in the way that uh, a fetus is organically intertwined in a womb. So, uh, so I, I found that pulling out these sides of Nietzsche might uh, help us to do some of our thinking about these, uh, about these issues. Plus I love the way, Nietzsche writes. Nietzsche writes in a way that is uh, that expresses and conveys the philosophy, uh, rather than simply or merely just arguing for the philosophy. So we're almost at the end of our time, Bill, um, but I don't want to let you go without just asking you to speak a little bit to the postlude. Um, And I I want to do this because I want to make sure that it's clear in a way that I may not have been emphasizing before how much the book is very much oriented toward action. Um, In in almost all the chapters, or perhaps all the chapters, there's um, some clear statement about how to move forward, how to act. This is not just a book of critique. This is a book that's trying to kind of infuse itself into the possibilities of everyday practice of its readers. And so the postlude does this as well. Now, the postlude is an exploration of the relations between belief, sensibility, political activism, and something that you call role experimentation. The idea of role experimentation and performance is really key here for, I think, encapsulating your... Um, suggestions and, and interventions for how to move forward in this postlude. So could you maybe bring us to the postlude of our conversation by speaking a little bit to that role experimentation and the work that it's doing in terms of how you think about the contribution this postlude is making? Well, um, yeah, critique is never enough. Uh, each critique must be joined to uh, the pursuit of some positive possibilities, even if it's a set of uh, possibilities out of a bad lot and and jo- joined to uh, potential uh, and actual political strategies and so I wanted to think about uh, in in the postlude how you could move back and forth from role experimentation, larger social movements, and even more uh, dramatic activities that would then have effects on electoral politics, but but also uh, uh, other modes of politics. And the role experimentation, uh, my debts here are to Judith Butler and to uh, and her her stuff on uh, work on gender trouble and many other texts and and uh, uh, to others as well. And the idea is that. Uh, that we're all immersed in a set of roles. Uh, we, we might be a worker, a teacher, a consumer, a church, a goer, uh, a, uh, a, 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 a film goer, a, a variety of roles. And so uh, there is a certain kind of opening 
uh, effect of experimenting with these roles or with some of these roles in li- in, in combination with other people uh, in, in, in ways that can help us uh, uh, speak to and uh, uh, try to um, reduce the fragility of things for the world today. But ro- so the roles experimentations where you, you buy a different kind of car, you sign up for uh, – uh, uh, wind uh, versions of, of, of electrical power. You uh, you change your, the courses that you teach, uh, and the list is, as you know, pretty long in the uh, the book. So, role experimentations open us up to become a little bit more creative. They have they have some modest effects of their own, and and they they also uh, open up the possibility, especially when large numbers of people do it, of creating a pluralist assemblage. Uh, that uh, is that is is more militantly coming to terms with the Anthropocene and other things like that today, because the time is short, uh, and so uh, uh, so I was trying to think about moving back and forth between uh, role experimentations and other modes of political action, uh, and that uh, the, so and the book actually. Uh, carries us to the point where we might have the beacon of a cross-state uh, general strike to, to pose interim demands upon the states, corporations, churches, universities, uh, and so forth today. Uh, so that, that I, I, at least that gets it started. That's, that's what I was trying to do uh, in the postlude. I, I, I wanted the postlude to be a contribution to a much larger discussion rather than a kind of an authoritative presentation of the situation. Great. Well, Bill, thank you so much. Um, the, the tragedy of the interviewer is that there's, of course, hours more <laughs> material that I would love to talk to you about. The book is exceptionally rich. But given um, that we only had an hour, is th- th- there was a lot that we didn't get to. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention uh, for listeners? Uh, I don't think so. I think I think I did slip in there about Kant and self-organization. Uh, and uh, uh, I think, I can't think of anything now. I'm Perhaps a little dizzy, even, but uh, but but I think that you have uh, uh, actually opened up a whole set of issues, and 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 I've tried to touch upon this one or touch upon that one, and as you say, there's a lot more to be done. Perhaps the just the the question about uh, what is our existential condition today uh, with respect to the notions of kind of existential resentment, gratitude, hubris, and so forth. What is, what is, the, what is the existential condition of, uh, of uh, uh, late modern societies today? Because that infiltrates into everything in politics. And that is a harder story to tell, but it might be a relevant one. I, I just mentioned that as a, uh, as a bland kind of point, perhaps. Well, now that um, I think it's a it's another story to tell, and now that you've told this story and the book is out, um, th- keeping all of this in mind, um, and thinking about how we're moving forward, and even um, sort of forward in terms of your own work, what's next for you? What are you currently inspired by and working on, and um, what what are the projects that are occupying you right now? 
Well, well my new graduate seminar is, is, uh, is going to be called uh, Philosophy in the Anthropocene. So that, that gives you a little bit of a sense. And I think that one of the things that I want to continue thinking about is, is the kind of the intercoded relationship between freedom, uh, fragility, and belonging. What are, the, what are the modes of belonging that are possible and appropriate for us today? We can't just be detached. Uh, and so that, uh, that's, that's kind of the, the problematic or the issue that I would uh, like to pursue. People uh, who I know, and I'm, I'm one of them who have a Deleuzian approach, oftentimes say, well, d- oh, they, they try to pursue detachment. They try to pursue uh, not not being stuck up with the nation and, and that sort of thing. Well, I don't want to be stuck with the nation. So what are the modes of belonging? And, or in Gilles Deleuze's vocabulary, which surprised a lot of people, how to, how to foment belief in this world when it's more fragile, uh, more tumultuous, more laden with events. That's my, that's my topic. I probably will never really uh, settle it, but that's the thing I find myself working on. Well, that sounds like another inspiring project, and I say that completely um, honestly. This whole uh, experience of engaging with the book and reading the book has been really inspiring to me, Bill, and, and also talking with you about it. So thank you very, very much, and best of luck with your work moving forward. Thank you, Carla, and thank you for uh, such a uh, reflective set of questions and issues. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society, and myself, and Bill Connolly, and The Thunderstorm. Thank you so much for joining all of us, human and non-human systems alike, and we will look forward to seeing you next time.